You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. We now return you to a continuing discussion from NEJM Audio Perspectives, provided in cooperation with the New England Journal of Medicine and moderated by Dr. Arnold Epstein of the Journal and Chair of the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard School of Public Health. I'm going to introduce Kate Baker. Kate is Professor of Health Economics here at the Harvard School of Public Health. She is one of the country's experts on the distribution and function of private and public health insurance markets. She's also spent two tours of duty in the government, most recently as one of three economists serving President Bush as part of his Council of Economic Advisors. Kate, thank you for joining. So let's, what I would like to do is frame out what I think are the key problems that this raft of legislation is trying to solve and look at a couple of the features that are included in a lot of them and see how successful they might be at solving those problems. There is clearly an overarching policy goal of making health care affordable to all Americans. Now that means putting health care within reach of the uninsured and keeping health insurance and health care affordable for those who are insured now. And that sounds like a, a relatively straightforward goal, but I think bundled in there are two goals. One that is relatively straightforward and one that is not straightforward at all. And it will come as no surprise that those two goals are related and that trying to solve one has profound implications for the other. The relatively straightforward goal is giving people the resources that they need to buy health care and health insurance. And if you are very low income or if you have very high health care expenses, the current uh, bundle of health care that's available to most people in the country may not be available to you. It's not affordable because of your low income or because of your high health costs. And one goal would be transferring resources to people who can't currently afford the care. So that's the relatively straightforward question because we kind of know how to transfer resources. There are different mechanisms, different ways of raising taxes, different ways of distributing those resources. We have to decide how much we want to do of that. But once we do, we know how to do it. The less straightforward problem, the even tougher problem, is getting high-value health care out of our system. Part of the reason that health care is unaffordable for a lot of people is that we're spending a lot of money on care that's of limited value in terms of improving health. Now, in a way, that makes things seem easier than they actually are. Because if we could say, here's the health care that does a lot of good, and here's the health care that's kind of wasted, let's not do that. <laughs> That would be easy. We would all be in favor of that and we'd be done. But of course, it's not so straightforward to say which you know, use of healthcare resources is really driving improvement in health and which resources aren't doing such a good job. And even if we could evenly divide them into healthcare that provides high value and healthcare that doesn't provide high value, it would be pretty hard to write down a set of public policies that pushed resources towards this while withholding resources from that. Because it's not so clear to write down a set of rules that defines here's the healthcare that's doing a lot of good. Even providers don't necessarily know that. There's a huge gray area of medicine, and that's where we see a lot of the growth in healthcare spending. It's in things that we're not exactly sure who they're doing good for and how much good they're doing. And that poses a real challenge. Now, these two conflicting goals are obviously related in that the more we bring healthcare cost growth under control, the more affordable healthcare is for people and the more affordable the subsidies that we need to target those resources towards people become. So, so that's the broad picture of the landscape. 
Let me try to then get into a few of the specifics of how different bills approach these problems and whether I think they achieve those goals or not. I'll start with the more straightforward problem of just getting extra resources to people who can't afford health care or health insurance right now. The questions that uh, policymakers face are how big should subsidies be? To whom should those subsidies be targeted? What's the mechanism through which they should be delivered? And one of the really contentious items in the debate is an individual mandate. Should there be an individual mandate to get health care or health insurance? And if so, how much are we going to subsidize people and what people are we going to exempt because the health insurance we're requiring them to get is not affordable to them? Now, I think we would all agree that getting everyone covered by insurance, especially when healthy, makes insurance markets function better. If you get covered when you're healthy and then some people are unfortunate and fall sick, those are uh, you then have more people across which to pool that risk. The goal of getting everyone insured is so that we as a you know, community then pool the risk of getting a bad draw and having an expensive health condition that we wish we had more resources to help cover. The individual mandate tries to accomplish that goal by getting everyone covered when healthy. It's very different from an employer mandate. And that's another bone of contention in the debate about getting more people covered. This one, I think, is often misguided. There is an idea that if you make employers kick in some money to health insurance, that then gets additional resources to people who can't afford insurance coverage and therefore will make insurance more affordable. The illusion there is that there are somehow some extra employer dollars to kick into the system and that if you just got stingy employers who don't provide insurance to pay for a little bit of the insurance that their workers would then be able to get, everybody would be able to afford more care than they can right now. The reason I think that that's an illusion is that really whatever employers kick in to any insurance policy comes out of workers' wages. It comes out of their wages because employers decide whether or not to hire people based on total compensation costs. When healthcare costs grow more quickly, wages grow more slowly. Now, does that mean the employer system is bad and that there's nothing to be gained from an employer mandate? No, right now, employer pools are the only way that we do risk pooling for people who aren't covered by public insurance plans. Anything that eroded the employer market should be accompanied by something that promotes another way of risk pooling, either in uh, reform of the non-group market, risk-adjusted vouchers. There are lots of alternatives to that. But that's something to be very wary of in eroding the employer market. But it's that risk pooling function that we want to be looking towards in the bills, not kicking in of extra resources from the employers. There's no secret pool of profits that we'll be drawing from. The last way that a lot of these bills try to cover more people is through expansions of Medicaid up the income distribution. And that is one of the more expensive provisions of some of the bills because right now Medicaid is a joint federal state program. It would remain a joint federal state program, but the federal government picks up somewhere between 50 and 85 percent of the tab depending on which state you live in. And so most of the bills under consideration put almost all of the costs on the federal government of the expansion population for Medicaid. That raises all sorts of other issues because the states that had already expanded don't want to be at a disadvantage compared with their stingier neighbors who hadn't expanded already. So that's a real political economy debate among the states and between the states and the federal government. All of those provisions can be very expensive because covering the uninsured never pays for itself. It would be nice to think that reductions in emergency department utilization, more efficient use of primary and preventive care would actually save us money in the long run so that these bills would pay for themselves. They don't pay for themselves if, if we're honest about it and the CBO is honest about it and says, no, you need to raise about a trillion dollars. That brings us to the second question of where you raise the money. The lesson that I take from the first 
issue I discussed is that it's not just about raising money. The straightforward thing is transferring money. If all we were trying to do was get low-income people some more money to buy health care, we would raise the money through general revenues. That's how we pay for transfers. We have a lot of general revenue tools at our disposal. You could do an income tax. You could do you know, all sorts of different taxes to just raise more money. The reason we're looking to the healthcare system to raise the money rather than just general revenues, is because we know the system is not efficient and that there are ways you might be able to get some money out of the existing system that would lower the total cost in a way that promotes higher value care. And that is the thornier problem. I think the bills on the table don't go far enough in terms of payment reform. Medicare is the major player in this space, in a lot of this space. And if Medicare could get resources used more efficiently, then that would spill over to private plans as well. All of the cost-cutting measures that are on the table shouldn't be thought of as the same, because some will increase value and some won't. I'll leave you with a thought on the interesting case of taxing insurers who offer really expensive plans. This is a very clever political idea, I think. Economists across the spectrum think that the way we currently subsidize employer-provided insurance is inefficient because we subsidize people with the highest income and the most expensive policies at the expense of people who don't have access to employer-provided insurance. That seems both regressive and inefficient. This, you know, Kerry proposal to tax expensive policies is a clever workaround to political objections to taxing health insurance. It's very hard to say the solution to our expensive health care problem is to tax health benefits and make you pay more. That seems counterintuitive, even though economists think it's a great idea, saying, well, we're going to tax the insurers who offer those plans. We're not taxing you. We're taxing those bad insurers. Of course, that gets passed right through to individuals, but it's a little opaque in a way that makes it more politically palatable, but it means that you can't do it based on income in the way that you could if you were to directly tax the individuals who have the more expensive policies. You could then do it in a more progressive way. So you sacrifice a little bit of progressivity, but you still go partway towards the goal of getting more value out of the system. That's an interesting case study in the balance of politics and economics. I'll stop there. The next speaker is Jacob Hacker, who's a Stanley Reeser professor at Yale University in political science. He is arguably the most prolific political scientist working in healthcare right now. He has written numerous articles and books, and those books have been a, won a number of notable awards. But what really brings him to the stage today is that he is arguably the largest proponent, if not the architect, of the public plan. And so, as Hank has already foreshadowed, we might get to hear a little bit about that. Jacob? So let's, let's remember for a moment why we're having this debate. I, I am going to cite two sets of statistics that both emerge out of the Harvard Medical School, Harvard School of Public Health complex. Uh, one is that about three in five bankruptcies in the United States uh, are due in part to medical costs and crises. Um, there's another study by a Harvard uh, scholar, but not here, uh, who, that shows that about half of foreclosures are also uh, due to uh, medical costs and debt. And just recently, uh, a uh, study was done here that suggests that perhaps as many as 45,000 unnecessary deaths in the United States uh, are due to lack of universal health insurance. So we're not just talking about a, a dollar and cents in financial uh, risk issue. We're talking about a life and death issue. Um, and that goes well beyond uh, those who are uninsured to the millions of Americans, like the, most of the three in five who declare bankruptcy, one, one family, one household every 15 seconds, uh, who have insurance but who don't have adequate protection. And with that unhappy story, I want to turn to a, 
I think, a happy report. I just got back from Washington, and a lot is happening there. Um, in fact, uh, for the first time uh, in the history of comprehensive reform debates, uh, we have complete legislation that has been reported out of committees in the House uh, and in one committee in the Senate, and there's markup taking place, as you know, right now uh, on another bill uh, from the Senate Finance Committee. So we are at a point, I think, a fateful moment in the debate. The architects of this effort have taken three broad lessons uh, out of the failure of health care reform in the early 1990s. Um, with apologies to James Carville, I've, I've summed these up in a piece in another journal of health policy as it's the politics stupid, don't forget fear, and change politics versus more of the same. So the first lesson, it's the politics stupid. Uh, the best laid plans are no good if you cannot get majority support for them or even 60 votes in the Senate. Uh, I think that lesson is learned uh, pretty beautifully. Um, the plans that have been put out are not pretty. They are meant to pass. And, uh, and I think that's why we're at a point where we can actually talk realistically about their passage, though I share uh, Hank's concerns about the financing side of the picture and many others as well. The second lesson that I mentioned was don't forget about fear. The fear of those who have coverage today, uh, fewer than in the past, but still the substantial majority of Americans that reform will undermine the quality or, the or raise the cost of their coverage. The fear of government and taxes that is very much a part of our discourse. I'm not so sure that that lesson was learned quite as well as it should have been. If you uh, have been following the discussion, it looks as if uh, fear of government and fear of uh, the negative effects of reform on people's uh, care, including those who already enjoy government-sponsored uh, health insurance in the form of Medicare, have been rampant, uh, have been fed by misinformation, and have had, I think, a big effect on the tenor of the debate uh, and the urgency with which uh, President Obama is now seeking a deal, even if it is, falls well short of his original aspirations. Now, to my mind, there are two ways in which we can respond to the fear that has been a part of this debate. One is to fight fear with fear, to talk about the risks that Americans are facing today and the risks if we don't act. And that's certainly something the advocates of reform have done. The other side of that, of the equation, is to fight fear with hope, to talk about the vision of reform and a reform system that could actually uh, bring us to a better, higher ground. I have to say that it's there that I think that the effort has been most uh, anemic so far. I mean, the, the plans are, are not just complex, but they kind of, they're, they're lacking a kind of underlying articulated vision that President Obama and congressional leaders have been able to bring out and use uh, to try to bring uh, Americans along with them. I think it's quite remarkable in many ways uh, how uh, well uh, the things are going right now, uh, given how poorly many aspects of this larger campaign of talking about and discussing the issue has been managed. Now, let me give you uh, one randomly chosen example, um, and it won't surprise you what it is, the public plan, right? The public plan was an essential element, if ignored element, of President Obama's campaign blueprint. It was actually in all of the Democratic candidates' health plans, uh, and it was there uh, for a couple reasons. One, uh, the political reason is that it was a way of speaking to those on the left who believe that uh, we need to have a substantial alternative to private health insurance, uh, particularly for-profit insurance. And second, it was there because it was a means as well of explaining in clear and simple terms how affordable coverage could be made available to people in a system that would continue to be principally reliant on employment-based health insurance. After all, it's very hard 
to think about how just the creation of some exchanges that would have 20 or 30 million uh, customers, people who don't have coverage today or who are working uh, for very small employers, would somehow magically transform our system to uh, make the private insurers that have doubled premiums over the last 10 years raising them four times faster than wage, to suddenly become cost-conscious uh, and efficient actors helping to bring down uh, the runaway costs of medical care. And indeed, I think that it's worth noting that the, the public plan also has come to solve another uh, problem, both political and a policy problem, for the administration as it has moved towards embracing the individual mandate. Because I think there's a great deal of worry out there, not just on the left, about the idea of requiring that people get health insurance from these private insurance companies without them facing some substantial competition from a public-spirited competitor for the business of those who uh, are now required to have coverage, the millions who will be brought uh, into the market for the first time. Um, the, third, the third lesson that I uh, mentioned in this piece was change politics versus more of the same. And what did I mean by that? I mean that there has been uh, a nostalgia, uh, and there certainly was during the Clinton administration uh, effort in the early 1990s for that bipartisan politics that produced the Tax Reform Act of 1986, uh, the Greenspan-led rescue of Social Security in the early 1980s. Um, those smoke-filled rooms where uh, men and men, uh, all rep uh, Republican and Democrat, got together to work out their differences in a, in a world where all politics was local, as Tip O'Neill famously put it. Well, that world's dead. It's gone. We live in a hyper-polarized political climate. Uh, Dick Armey summed up the new maximum of our age by saying not all politics is local, but you never offend your base. And now Republicans, as we've seen, are busy trying to cater to that base. If you look at the numbers, the, the Republican Party has gotten very conservative over the last generation. Uh, it's not, you don't even have to look at the numbers. You can look at your TV set. Um, and it's moved to the right in, 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 for different reasons than the Democratic Party has moved to the left. The Democratic movie Party has moved to the left mostly because of the loss of its conservative uh, Southern Democratic contingent. And in fact, if you look at ideological issue scores, the Northern uh, Democrats are basically where they were 20 or 30 years ago. Um, but on the right, uh, each generation of Republicans that has replaced the next has been quite a bit more conservative according to these scores. Now, I think that's going to change because of shifts that are occurring in American politics today. But we are living right now in, a, in an environment where reaching across the aisle is a way of getting your arm chopped off. Um, now, this may sound, this all may sound uh, pessimistic. So I want to I end, actually, I think, on, on a hopeful on a hopeful note. Uh, and on a hopeful note with regard to uh, not just the overall effort, but the fate of the public plan. And I, and I, think, I think that the one uh, sort of uh, thing that gives me heart is that at every stage when it looks like the public plan has been on the rocks, uh, it's been rescued. Uh, it's come back. Because as I said, it is essential for two simple reasons. One, it's an essential guarantee uh, for Americans that they will, in a reformed insurance environment, have a real choice to the, to, the, to the kinds of private insurance plans that have helped get us into our present mess. And second, it actually delivers substantial savings. The Congressional Budget Office, is, it's a moving target on these numbers, but just came out with new scoring on the House bill that says that the House legislation with a Medicare-like public plan that's tied in part to, uh, tied to Medicare rates and has a, a provider network that builds on Medicare's but allows doctors to opt out, that that plan would save about $85 billion uh, over 10 years, which is not uh, trivial money. Rather than trying to treat it as some kind of litmus test of a, of, a, of a loony left, why not just treat it as something, as the president has said, that's, that's crucial to keeping insurance companies honest? If it can pass, it will, and if it can't, 
We'll know that soon enough. And so it is time to step back, I think, for all of us and decide what is the ultimate goals uh, in reform. It is not a public plan in itself. It is affordable quality health care for all Americans. I don't believe that that is something that uh, is hard to define at a certain basic level. I think we know what that means. And so let us hope that that's the outcome of this debate. You have been listening to NEJM Audio Perspectives, provided in cooperation with the New England Journal of Medicine. The following part of this discussion continues next week on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. 